Subscribe, click the notification bell, and follow me at Dark Prevails on Twitter, and you'll never miss a new scary video. Birds chirping, wind blowing through leaves. As you stand there in the forest, you remember, this is why you go hiking. The fresh air around you and the absence of the noises of humanity. It's pleasant, but as you continue to walk those peaceful trails, the sounds come to a halt entirely. There's a new kind of silence as you begin to wonder what you've just stepped into. The sounds are gone now, and you realize you recognize nothing around you, and you no longer feel alone. Enjoy these allegedly true scary search and rescue stories with the relaxing sounds of the forest. One, The Last Hide and Seek by Gregor. I was nine years old when I had the most traumatic experience of my life. I lived with my father in West Virginia. It was a small town next to a very calm forest and a small pond. Dad worked most of the time. Luckily for me though, there were two families that lived nearby. The family that lived to the north had a son my age named Durden, and the neighbors to the east had twins named Michael and Matthew. We went to the same school together, the four of us. We even had the same teacher a few times over the years. At home, we spent nearly every day together, especially days like this one when my dad wasn't home. We were outdoor kids, and our favorite game to play was hide and seek. One person seeks, the others hide, and the rule is you can't move from your hiding spot, not until you're found. It was fun and suspenseful, but never more suspenseful than it was that day. That day, we went deeper into the woods, maybe a little deeper than we were supposed to. It was Durden's turn to seek. I remember the other three of us running in opposite directions, trying to stifle our laughter. I found my hiding spot quickly, under a collapsed tree with leafy branches, making a sort of natural teepee. I waited there for several minutes, but oddly, I never heard Durden say the usual, Ready or not, here I come. When ten minutes turned into thirty minutes of waiting, I climbed out from under the tree, and I ran back to where I'd last seen Durden. Matthew and Michael were already there. Where's Durden? I asked. Matthew shook his head, and Michael continued to look around for any trace of him. For hours, we searched for Durden. We looked until it was dark, and our childhood fears of getting reprimanded by angry parents forced us to head back home. It wasn't long until my father received a call from Durden's mother asking where he was. My father confronted me. I cried. I broke down and told him about our game that had gone wrong. Over the next two weeks, a search and rescue operation was called into effect. Police officers, firefighters, and local parents all searched the nearby woods, but nothing turned up. Nothing until the beginning of the third week. 
That was when the only people still looking were Durden's parents and a volunteer forest service group. They finally found Durden. They told me he wasn't alive, but they never told me the truth of what happened. Instead, my father forbade me from ever stepping foot into those woods. He made sure that any time I spent outside was under his own watchful eyes. It wasn't until I visited my father over Thanksgiving in 2017 that I finally learned the truth. Well, some of it. I was 32 then. My father said to me with an expression more chilling than I'd ever seen him wear, Durden, he was in the trees. What does that mean? I asked. Did he get stuck in a tree? I was confused and ready to hear the truth. No, son. Durden was in the trees. Several of them. Parts and splatters of him everywhere. The only place he wasn't was on the ground. I was shocked. Stunned, breath stolen from my chest. Uh, what? H how does that happen? H who did that to him? I didn't realize I was raising my voice slowly, getting angry. No one knows, Greg. Ain't no one had any clue for the past 23 years. I guess you now know why I kept you out of those woods after his disappearance. That's really all there is to this story. You might be wanting to know more, but I don't. I'd rather not know what caused my childhood friend to virtually become splattered all over the forest. Just be careful, because even in these modern days, there are mysteries, dangerous mysteries that can take your loved ones away from you in the blink of an eye. Two, the Ghostly Mayday by The Madness of Rose. I'm in the Coast Guard and was stationed in Oregon for about three and a half years. During those years, I saw some pretty horrible things. A boat that went down right before my eyes, a man who breathed his very last, and a child who had lost his life when his schizophrenic mother threw him off of a bridge. That's just to name a few. Most of these things are unfortunately pretty average to your day-to-day -day life as a guardsman, but there has always been something about the sea that has held some form of mystery or another. In November of 2014, we were contacted by our sister station that there was a boat going down and that they had contacted the sector where all the search and rescue calls got vetted through the command center, that we needed to launch one of our SAR boats, or search and rescue boats. They already had a helicopter en route. We quickly loaded up and found ourselves at a breaking bar, the waves easily reaching 12 feet high with consistent white caps. We pressed on, our vessel able to take the nasty weather, and ferried on. Now we could hear the fishing vessel Artemis on Channel 16, the International Hailing and Distress Channel, 
If you're ever in a pickle and need to get a hold of the Coast Guard, that's the channel to SOS on. They were begging for someone to come and help. We got their information, like how big their vessel was, how much they were carrying, how many people, and of course, the rate at which the water was entering the hull. Unfortunately, as we neared the field of view, all communication went silent. The helicopter called us up on our encrypted channel and said that there was no fishing vessel to be seen at the reported location. They had just up and disappeared. They requested that we search the area for debris to make sure it wasn't a faux distress call, and so we did. We found a sheen of oil and a couple of bits and baubles that read Artemis on it. It was obvious that the ship had indeed met a watery end. But where were the men on board? We searched and searched for 36 hours or more, looking for any signs of the crew. But at the end of it, there was no one to be found, living or otherwise. With heavy hearts, we called off all our efforts and went back to operations as normal, getting ready for the upcoming holiday season. This is when stuff started getting pretty freaky. About a week after the search, me and my best friend Kevin, who also happened to be my boss, were sitting in the communications room, just talking. 20 hundred hours, I believe, or 8 p.m. for non-military folks, and we weren't expecting any other traffic to come over the radio that night. As Kevin opened his mouth to respond to a joke I'd said, the radio circuitry lit up red, signifying a call was coming over Channel 16. Mayday! Mayday! Someone help! A distant voice called over the radio, even though it didn't sound like a voice that would be of this world. It was hollow and sounded far away, like someone was shouting into a tin mug while falling down a well. A shiver shot up my spine as I leaned forward and responded to the call. Unit in distress, this is Coast Guard Station Marble Bay. What is your position and nature of distress? Over. I returned the call as the radio began to go absolutely bananas. All of our radios started to light up as static poured through the speakers. Kevin and I raced around, trying to turn the radios down, and the static finally faded into nothing. A horrible silence filled the room as we both looked over at one another, wondering what the heck had just happened. Check the lines of bearing, Kevin instructed as I pulled up our interactive map and watched as the two red lines crossed over one another, revealing a small spot on the chart to indicate where the call had come from. No freaking way, he said slowly, shaking his head. It was the exact same position where the Artemis had gone down. We called the sector to make sure that they had heard the call as well, but they said it was all quiet on their end, that they hadn't heard any calls for help. We wrote it off as a faux call, but I, to this day, nearly three years later, believe that the voice was from the lost crew of the Artemis, calling out for help one last time before their souls were lost forever in the briny depths of the sea. Please note that Marble Bay is a made-up name for this story. 3. 
My Dad and the Creature in the Woods by the TARDIS Lady. This is my father's story. He doesn't like to talk about it, but once you get him drinking, he won't shut up about it. From about 2008 to 2013, my dad worked for the Multnomah County Search and Rescue Department in the Portland metro area. He absolutely loved the work, but the job itself was grueling and often had really terrible payoff. Whether it be the remains of people or drugged out lost hikers, there were plenty of them. However, my dad always told me that there were things in those woods that not even God himself could have placed on this earth. In November of 2013, my dad was called out to go and hunt down a missing runaway girl in the Mount Hood wilderness. Normally, their department didn't deal with kids up that far east, but they had recalled all of their Northern Oregon teams to help search for this girl. Since my dad had two kids about the same age at home, he quickly packed up his bag and went to help. My father was one of the best climbers on the team, easily repelling 200-foot cliffs without batting an eye, and his team was given a very gnarly part of the grid pattern that was customary on all searches. He and his team loaded up and headed down that way. They worked all the way towards sunset, belaying down the cliffside, screaming this girl's name. When the sun started to set over the canyon, most of the team were radioed back in, and they packed up, because they weren't allowed to climb up and down cliffs in the dark. My dad was the last one that they were going to pull up, but as he was getting ready to head up the cliff, an eerie shriek, like that of a Huron, but much louder, echoed through the otherwise silent woods. My father swears the hair on the back of his neck stood up. He turned around to see someone, no, something, standing about 100 feet back in the underbrush, its eyes reflecting his headlamp. Now, deer are a common sight in the woods, but my father, being the avid outdoorsman he was, knew that this was no deer, especially when the thing actually stood up on two legs, like any bipedal would, and my dad finally saw the creature wholly. The thing was tall and skinny, with an impossibly large mouth that was split open by glistening, jagged teeth. Its abnormally long, scrawny arms hung limply at its side, the hands of this monstrosity coming to fine talons where fingernails should have been. On its head were a pair of antlers, like a mockery of an elk or deer. My dad couldn't move. He couldn't have gone anywhere even if he had wanted to. He and the creature watched one another for a few more seconds until it gave one more agonizingly horrifying shriek and turned away from my dad, silently creeping back into the woods. When my dad retold the story, he forgot to mention one little detail. In the light of the setting sun, he could see the creature's fingers were stained with a dried, liquidy red. The team began to haul my father up the cliffside, just as the sun sunk below the horizon. His team tried to ask my father what was wrong, 
but he was convinced that he had been hallucinating in the cold mountain air. They walked back to their base camp, and my father drove home in silence. I remember seeing my father that night, because I've never seen a grown man, let alone my father, look so haunted, so terrified. The next day, they went back to the grid and hunted further into the next square. As the morning turned to afternoon, a shrill cry was heard from one of the female volunteers. My dad and his crew practically sprinted to where the screaming was coming from. There, half concealed under a bush, was what was left of the young girl. I won't go into any more detail there. My dad couldn't help but think, when he saw the girl, that perhaps the unnatural-looking creature he saw the night before had something to do with it. My father is no longer part of the search-and-rescue team. 4. Lights in the Sky by Regis I volunteered once and only once for search and rescue. As an introvert, I didn't like to go outside, let alone crowd around others screaming the name of a missing person. But when that person is a childhood friend, well, you better believe I stepped up my game and helped out in the cause. His name was Ryan, and he had gotten himself lost in the nearby National Forest. There were four of us in our group, separated by about five meters each as we fanned out searching every inch of those woods. Even my quiet self was shouting desperately for Ryan. It was around 15 minutes past nightfall when something bizarre happened, something terrifying. One second, everything was dark, and then the next, blindingly bright lights filled the sky above us, as if someone without us knowing had set up thousands of skylights above the trees. They came on without a noise and surprised us so much that the four of us fell onto our backs, covering our faces. For the next minute, the lights were there, but after that, they suddenly switched off. After a massive near-deafening whistling noise, everything went back to normal. When we picked ourselves up, we were dumbfounded for a moment, but nevertheless went back to looking for Ryan. We found him not too long afterward. Him, along with literally every other member of the search team, had reported seeing those lights, and none of us have an explanation for it. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, 
where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Five. He didn't make it. By Dean Castiel and Sam. I've worked as a paramedic for a while now. I mainly go out with search and rescue teams to treat people who are found. My best friend Judah is a nurse. We work together at the same hospital. He had a day off, so he volunteered to go with us. On that day, we got an alert that a 25-year-old man had been missing for days and had been spotted by a man who was hiking. We loaded up and took off. I was in the back of the ambulance. They told me not to join the search directly. Instead, they'd need me there immediately if they brought him out of the woods. So, as I was setting up the gurney, I got a call when they found the body of the guy. Even though they swore they had just seen him, then there's the really creepy part. I was talking to some of the police. One of them was a friend named James. I remember him being in front of me. Behind him in the distance was the tree line. Suddenly, I saw a figure standing there, and soon I could make it out. It was the man who was lying on the gurney, like a perfect copy of him. He was standing there, staring at all of us who were talking. I was breathless. As fast as he appeared in the tree line, he walked back and disappeared in the trees. I had no explanation for it. How was I seeing the same man twice? A man that was no longer alive. Being in this sort of occupation, you know just how many people go missing in the woods, some of which their cases are unsolved or strange. And now I have a newfound interest, curiosity, or respect for those cases. Maybe something bizarre is at work here. Six, The Wildfire by Anonymous I am a Native American wildland firefighter and often a search and rescue officer from the National Park Service. For the sake of my job, I will not tell you my name or place I work, but I need to get this story off of my chest as it has shaken me to my very core. I hope that there is someone out there listening that will at least know that there are things in the dense forests that we as humans cannot comprehend. When I was a probie in the Wildland Service, I had a mentor whose name was Combs. 
Combs had served in the Marine Corps and was deployed three times, so basically he was a hardcore mentor. Many cadets wanted him as their mentor. He was a thick and burly man with many tattoos, tattoos of the names of his brothers from the service and many who had fallen in combat. I've had many memories of him waking me up and having me run a four-mile trail with a firefighter hose over my shoulder. He was in many ways a father to me and my crew. One day, I mustered the courage to ask him about a tattoo he had on his forearm that read, Absence of Light. I asked him about it while he had me doing my routine exercises. He replied that growing up, he had encountered some very strange but fascinating things that he'd never forget. A bit shaken up, he said I was done for the day, then had me go home. After a few more months of physical military-style training, I was ready for my first wildfire. On my way to the base, Combs looked at me and said, What you might see out here we cannot speak of. In our world, we often look for life in the absence of space and other planets, when we should be looking in our own backyards. Soon, we arrived at a camp, a sort of makeshift station with other crews. There were ten of us in all, including me and Combs. We ate dinner together that night, then got a measly three hours of sleep before Combs woke me up and the crew got ready. We drank some coffee quickly and then went out to fight the wildfire. Part of the job was also to keep an eye out and search for people who may have been caught in it, and this is where the bizarre happens. I remember spraying a thick line of water fiercely into the fire, which seemed to drink it up infinitely. It was my first experience fighting a blaze like that, and it really showed me how intimidating it really was. It felt nearly pointless or futile, but I kept on going. At one point, I swear I saw someone come from the fire, waving me down, crying for help. I could very clearly see and hear the person there, but none of the other crew reacted to them. I went up to Combs and said that we need to save that person, but he put his hand on my shoulder and said, That's no person. I was confused. I turned around and looked at the figure. It was no longer screaming or waving, rather standing there, its figure being shifted and morphed in the flames. Yet, they no longer tried to act like they were in pain. I had never been more confused. Later on, Combs told me, Sometimes you will see things in the fire that will try to get you to come in. But if you do, you'll never come out. Joining this service, I had no idea what I was really getting myself into. Seven. When I Got Lost by Jonathan Back when I was a kid, around the age of 13, I would go for walks in the woods, just tramping around in the leaves during the fall or trudging through the snow during the winter, my favorite of the seasons. There was a certain walk that I'll never forget. It was winter, a bad one, and I had gone into the woods fully clothed, by which I mean I was wearing four or five different layers. 
My walk was slow and cold that day, but I didn't pay it much mind. I was more focused on my footsteps, trying not to get stuck in a hole that I couldn't see through the snow. It was because of that snow being so heavy that I soon realized I no longer recognized where I was. Better yet, I didn't know which way was back. That's when it all started. First, I was nervous, heading back the way I thought I'd come from, but only making myself more lost. An hour later, I was in a full-blown panic, unsure of whether I should stay put or keep going and risk getting more and more lost. When the sun was beginning to set, I was crying cold tears. I wouldn't be making it home that night, not unless someone found me. I curled up under a tree, absolutely freezing, the snow coming down harder now. For hours, I shivered there, waiting for someone to come, waiting for a miracle. It was in that darkness that I saw someone. I didn't even hear them approach, but there they were, a tall, bulky figure clothed in darkness, standing beside the tree that I was under. I smiled, but quickly stopped myself from speaking a word. It wasn't a person. It wasn't a human at all. Their foot, which was on the ground near my head, wasn't a foot. When I saw it up close, standing in a thinner part of the snow, I know how ridiculous it's going to sound, but it appeared to be a hoof. Whatever it was that was standing next to me was leaning against the tree, one hand or claw on the bark, as it was only inches away from me. I couldn't see its face very well, but I could see that it wasn't looking at me. I remember wanting to soil myself, but I was afraid that it would smell me if I did. So I shut my eyes hard, and I waited. I heard it sniff the air a few times, then finally, it walked away. Still, for the next hour, I didn't dare whimper. Sometime early in the morning, a search party found me. It consisted of my parents, uncle, cousins, and some police. They said that I was covered in so much snow, they were surprised they saw me at all. I was okay, despite nearly getting frostbitten, but I couldn't stop wondering, what did I see that night, and what would have happened if it could have seen me? Eight. My Worst Search and Rescue Experience by Bardo In my mid-twenties, I worked as a volunteer search and rescue officer for a tri-state area in the Midwest. It was darn near the epicenter of dozens of yearly disappearances. From the sounds of it, you'd think I'd have seen some serious or strange stuff over the years, but not so much. Most everyone is found, and those that weren't found like that were simply taken by bad weather. All very real and all very explainable. That being said, I do recall one experience that had me really freaked out. We were called in to join a search party. A young girl had gone missing from her family's campsite. When I met up with them, the parents were a nervous wreck, 
and just wanted to see their daughter home safe. We combed the forest for hours, and around midnight, we finally found her. The five-year-old girl was clutching a stuffed horse. When she saw me and Carl, another volunteer officer, she looked up and smiled. She was perfectly fine, perfectly clean, too, as if she had been sat there the entire time and nothing had touched her. I gave her a real smile and knelt down to her level. Hey, are you Sarah? I said. She nodded. I bet you miss your mommy and daddy, huh? They're worried about you. You want me to take you to them? Once again, she nodded. I gladly picked her up, and we made our way to her parents at a nearby ranger station. While we walked, I asked her a few questions. It got weird when I asked her what happened. She replied, A big man took me. I was stunned, so she had been kidnapped, and this was going to drive the cops into a frenzy. I asked her who did it, and she said, The fur man. I thought I misunderstood her and asked again, The man with fur. He's taller than you, and he doesn't talk, but he's real soft. Chills went over my body. At that point, I was done asking questions. My creep and weird factor couldn't go any higher than that. I returned the girl to her relieved and loving parents, and everything was fine. I told the police about what she said, but they didn't look into it. Just the incoherent ramblings of a lost child, they said. But I couldn't help but keep thinking about it. Who in the world had taken her? And who or what is the fur man? Nine, The Screaming by Vivian This is a quick and chilling experience I had while performing a search and rescue. It was November and still pretty warm in the mountains. We were looking for a couple who had gotten lost. Their family had called for help after they were four hours late for a barbecue. I had personally started looking into those hikers two hours back and I was now walking through the woods wordlessly when something startled me. It was a scream, a woman's scream. It was definitely human, because the scream was speaking something, a very audible pair of words saying, Help us. Instantly, I got chills, mostly because the screaming had come from directly above us. No, not further up the mountain, but upwards, like into the sky and above the trees. I wasn't sure at first what was going on, and then it came again. Another help us, desperately hitting us from directly above. It was like someone was at the top of the trees calling down to us, but obviously there was no one there. I searched the area fervently for half an hour, but there was nothing to be found, and no other screaming came after that. When I regrouped to get some water and take a rest, I was quickly told that the couple had been found several hours ago. Literally seconds after I'd left the search, they'd been recovered. They were fine, and after questioning them myself, they never made or heard any screaming. But still, who did make that screaming? And ten... 
The Last One in Line by David. This experience is hard for me to recollect because I lost a very close loved one in this story, but I believe it's a story that is very fitting for this community. I was 14. My family were outdoor freaks, constantly camping and hiking and kayaking. My mom, dad, aunt, and uncle and I, several times a month, would go explore new regions, forests, and parks with backpacks on our backs and walking sticks with our names on it in hand. It was a bit cringy, but I loved it. My family was close back then and definitely in shape. One day we were hiking a lightly trodden trail through a thick evergreen forest in Ohio. The trail wasn't very wide, so we each walked in line, one after the other. My father in front and my uncle in back. I remember it being quiet. We were heading up a steep hill, so no one was speaking because everyone was out of breath. I was directly in line in front of my uncle. When I looked back last, my uncle was maybe a yard from me. I remember him smiling at me and cleaning off his glasses. But only two minutes later, the moment I heard that loud thud, right after the sound of rapid footsteps behind me, when I looked back, my uncle was gone. I had no earthly idea that that would be the last day I ever saw my uncle. He was never found, and you can even still see his face on those bulletin boards with missing people on them. It's been five years now, and if he's out there, I don't think he's alive. I can honestly say that no one knows what happened. My parents heard it too, and they think he fell and tumbled into a quick demise. But I was the closest, and from what I heard, those footsteps began in the forest. They didn't come from him. They were coming from something out in the woods near us. I know it sounds horrible, but I think something took my uncle. Maybe a mountain lion or panther, maybe. It can and still does happen these days, especially to those who are last in line. When you step into the wilderness, you never know if you'll be coming back out of them. We seem to forget as people that we're still part of the food chain, that anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it could happen to you. So before you lose yourself in the woods and wonder if the search and rescue teams can find you, remember, many missing person cases remain unsolved. Good night. Be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe if you enjoyed the video. You can send me your stories at darknessprevails.org submit. If you want to support my channel further and get your name in the credits, you can go to patreon.com darknessprevails and pledge just one buck a month. You can get some Darkness Prevails merchandise at morbidmonsters.com or download my free app Spooked off the Google Play Store. As always, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous video about 10 true scary stories from the lake. Boasty says, Mmm, phalanges. Because of that word, I can't look at other people named Angie the same way again. I wonder if there's a phalanges list. Kane7ify says, Who's up for a dip? As long as it's a dip of the skinny kind. 
Kawaii Ale says, I love these new sounds. Considering how many listeners use these stories to go to sleep to, it's only natural. She Wolf Moon says, The first thing that comes to mind is, someone is going to lie down, listen to this, and wake up having soaked their own sheets. I guess you could say it's a way to make your own lake. And Dime93 says, Oh God, I'll never make it to the top five comments. I'm always late. You were pretty early in my book, so here you go. Anyways, thank you all for watching, and I hope you enjoyed this video. More scary stories are soon to come. Here are the credits to my patrons who continue to donate. Thank you. Until next time, stay safe out there and stay creepy.